But you'd open your Bibles with me. We turn to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8. And we'll read from verses 18 through the end of the chapter, verse 39. Romans 8, beginning at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for that for what he sees? But if we hope for that which we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, those he also called. Whom he called, those he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. May God bless both the reading and exposition of his word. I The text, this is... Um, 
I'm scheduled to preach approximately once a month for the next five month for the next period of time, and I propose to preach five sermons on Romans 8, verses 28 through 30. I'll read them, but you'll notice that within this text, it talks about all things working together for good, and it roots it in what is sometimes called the golden chain of foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. So I plan to preach five sermons on this passage, each through the lens of one of the five, and today we'll deal with this passage through the lens of God's foreknowledge. But let's reread verses 28 through 30, which is really at the heart of the argument Paul is making, where he says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, those he also called. Whom he called, those he also justified. And whom he justified, those he also glorified. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the book of Romans is... A magisterial book, all of Scripture, of course, is inspired by God, but there are many children of God who count the book of Romans as among their favorites. If you recall reading through this book at various times, or perhaps having studied in Bible study, it is probably the most systematic of Paul's letters in explaining the doctrine of salvation. You can summarize the book of Romans as answering the question, how can I be righteous before God? Paul, after he introduces the book of Romans in the first verses, the grand and comes to the end of the introduction in verse 117 with that familiar text, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul establishes right from the beginning that the gospel has a dynamite power that is able to make the just by faith in Christ live in relationship again to God. And then he proceeds to unpack what that means. And from chapter 118 through chapter 320, Paul describes the fact that we all are broken and lost before God. We're all sinful. There is no one righteous, no, not one, Paul writes. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So Paul begins by laying out the universal nature of the problem that you and I face. We are by nature not in a right relationship with God. In chapter 321, he picks up the teaching of the fact that just because we are not presently in a right relationship with God, that doesn't mean we can't be made right with God. Well, how is that possible? You may recall from our series on the book of Abraham that Romans 4 is really an extended commentary on Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. It is nothing in us, but it is what God provides. 
God provides the righteousness for us to be made in a right relationship to him. And by faith we embrace that. And we are made right before God. Chapter 5, Paul concludes with that glorious description of the work of Christ. He says, describes Christ as a second Adam. We all fell into sin through the sin of our first father, Adam. But in the same way, as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by man, one man's obedience many shall be made righteous. So Paul has made the case. We're all broken and separated from God, and yet it is possible for us to be made and declared righteous before God through the work of Christ. Well, what then remains of the problem of sin? And chapter 6 asks that question rhetorically. What shall we say to these things then? Shall we sin that grace may abound? If it is totally the work of Christ, why does it make a difference what you and I do every day? Christ's blood covers it all. We can go live as we want. We don't have to worry about the law of God. All is okay. Paul says, no, 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 God forbid. If that's your response to this, you've missed the point of the message. And he proceeds to explain that, yes, sin does remain within the believer. Sin is real. But, he says, when you're in Christ, you're no longer a slave to sin. Back when you were in the condition I described in chapters 1 to 3, you were a slave to sin. Sin defined your life. But when you are in Christ, you're not a slave to sin. You'll recall the the famous passage in Romans 7 where he talks about the good that I would not, that I do. The evil that I would not, that I do. And he talks about, oh, wretched man that I am. It's a real struggle. Sin continues to be real with us and fight day to day. And yet Paul says that even though you have the struggles with sin, sin will not have the last word. Believers are given the spirit of adoption whereby they can cry, Abba, Father, for help in the battle against sin. They can know that they are adopted children of God and that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. They are legally righteous before God. Well, that covers the book of Romans up till the passage that we began reading and in the passage that has our attention today, Paul comes with another problem regarding sin. You see, it's one thing to be made righteous before God. It's another thing to struggle with sin in our own lives. But Paul says and addresses another issue that's very real in the church. And that is, why is it then, if Christ has forgiven it, why is it that so much bad stuff that comes as a result of sin, still impacts believers? Why is it that we face so much trouble and challenge in the world? In our passage, Paul is making a transition. He's teaching doctrine, but whereas Romans 1 through 8 is essentially Paul the catechism teacher, in our text, Paul moves to Paul the pastor. Now, he has written this book to the Romans. At the time when he has written this book, Paul has never been to Rome. He doesn't know the congregation. 
We know from the context of the book of Romans that the, book, the church at Rome had been well established and it was well known for her works. But there is no reason to believe that we are aware of that there were particular issues or problems in the church. It's not as if a sudden catastrophe had come to the church at Rome and he was writing a letter of condolence or a letter of sympathy for some disaster. No, he's, Paul's describing the fact that generally the Christian church can expect to face suffering. He noted, did you notice in verse 15 or 18 when we began? I considering the sufferings of this present time. What's this present time? 58 AD when he's writing the letter? No, Paul's talking about the present time between the ascension of Christ and the second coming of Christ. The church in that period of time will have a season of suffering. And at the core of the passage comes a text that most of us are very familiar with. It's a text that hangs on many of our walls. It's a text that we put in many cards when we write to people who are facing difficulty. All things work together for good for those who love God. And taken at face value, it's very comforting and it seems like an easy answer, doesn't it? If you're a Christian, you don't need to worry because whatever suffering you're going to have is going to work out good. And yet, I don't know about you, but I will confess that I have often felt kind of cruel quoting this text. Well, yes, it's true, but... When you're visiting a visitation after a tragic death. Just saying all things work together for good to those who love God doesn't answer all the questions, does it? When you're facing the challenges of having a loved one, just having received a call from the doctor of a terminal diagnosis, or somebody's lost their job and there's a very difficult road ahead. It's tempting. And it would be desirable to simply respond with Romans 8.28, all things work together for good, and wash our hands and say it's all God's problem. And yet we know from experience that even struggling with that message has caused many children of God pain and misunderstanding and even resentment towards God. And part of the reason is because when we quote Romans 8.28 outside of the context in which we are given, it communicates something quite different than what Romans 8.28 means within the overall context that it's there. And so I propose over the next few months to work our way carefully through this passage to try to better understand this important truth. And why is that? Well, suffering is very real. It's real in every area of the Christian church, including our own. But there are times in the life of the church in which there are circumstances that are dominating and defining 
which it's really hard to make sense of life without looking through the lens of suffering. There are some in our time who are going through that. And there are some who may yet go through that through circumstances we don't know. And the comfort of Romans 8 is that it's one of those passages that reminds us that the Bible was not meant for a laboratory in which we experiment about what thing we imagine what things might be under different circumstances. The Bible wasn't meant for a museum so that we could look back in terms of how people of old dealt with certain things and say, oh, how quaint. No, the Bible is meant for you and for me as a guidebook for a light on our path even today, even through the path of suffering. And so we'll look at Romans 8, 13 to 18 through 39, and we'll use the five lenses of verse 30 as the frame. Sometimes it's called the golden chain. As I was thinking of the sermon and doing some work over the last few months and preparing for it, at first I had titled the series The Golden Chain. And then I moved the title to From Suffering to Glory. Titles really don't matter that much. It's going to cover the same material. But you may notice in the bulletin I've ended up covering it all things for good. Why is that? Because the essence of this message, of what Paul is saying here, is that when we start with our suffering, we will always end up in difficulty. The Christian answer to suffering is to start with God's plan. Now, as we will see, that doesn't mean we can just throw out suffering that God is indifferent. But what Paul is really instructing us here is that when we naturally deal with suffering, we deal with it in the wrong way and we start with ourselves and our circumstances. But that the great comfort comes from the love of God, which is behind the divine plan. So we can't really understand Romans 28, verse 30. When we send the cards, we usually say all things work together for good for those who love God, but we forget to write those he, for, those he foreknew, he also did predestinate. Those he predestinated, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Five links of a golden chain. And all things work together for good don't mean much without the golden chain. The golden chain holds together the plan of salvation, but Paul here isn't writing to instruct us doctrinally about salvation. What he is saying is the logical conclusion of everything I've said in Romans 1 to 8 so far is that salvation is not just about saving your soul. God cares about your bodies. God cares about your circumstances too. And there is comfort for the believer because God's salvation, Christ's accomplishment, has dealt with not only sin and its guilt, it's also dealt with its consequences. The curse of sin is being dealt with. The disease, the decay, the thorns, and the thistles, they are as much the object of God's salvation. And they too will be changed. And that's what makes this such a glorious passage. It's not theoretical 
or spiritual, but it covers all of life. Well, with that introduction, let's dig deeper into this first passage as we look at God's foreknowledge. And we see, first of all, that this promise is provided in a groaning context. Did you notice as we read between verses 18 and 27, three times we had a reference to groaning. First one was in verse 22, where it says, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs. What does that mean? Children, what does it mean when the creation that God has made is groaning with birth pangs? Well, to understand this, we have to go back to Genesis 1. You remember the story, Genesis 1. God created the world. What does it say about God's creation of the world? It was very good. There were no pains. There were no there was no thistles. There was no ugliness in creation. There were no dead plants. It was perfect. After Genesis 1 comes Genesis 3. And you remember the story. Adam and Eve fell into sin. And when they fell into sin, they were separated from God. They got sent out of the garden. But what else happened? Thorns and thistles began to grow. There was pain in childbirth. Work became toil. Prior to falling into sin, Adam and Eve worked every day. They worked in the garden. They tilled. But you know what? Their muscles never ached. They didn't pull any muscles. They didn't hurt themselves. It was perfect. But when sin came, sin not only affected human beings, sin affected the whole creation. And what Paul is saying here is that we dealt with this problem of sin in Romans 1 to 8, and we dealt with it in terms of your relationship to God being made legally right to God. But don't think that Jesus Christ came to do half a job. The death of Christ on the cross simply didn't deal with the guilt of sin. It also deals with the curse of sin. And the creation itself is going to be renewed in the new heaven and the new earth. And so it is that even now, just as you are dealing with the pains of being here in this life and not fully being glorified yet, so the creation itself is not yet the new earth. And it's looking forward to the day. Paul says in verse 22, we are so, uh, that the creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. It's feeling the effects of sin. We're still in this time of suffering, this time of sin. But the creation is looking forward to being delivered into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So we had in verse 22 the creation groaning. Verse 23 we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan within ourselves. Well, this is a little easier to understand, isn't it? Who here would not confess to the fact that from time to time we groan within ourselves? 
We feel the limitations of our body. We feel the pains of sickness. We feel all of the challenges of the brokenness of life around us. We hurt ourselves. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we who have been justified by Christ and the Holy Spirit has come to live within us, we have a sense that our renewed bodies are going to be something different than what we have here today. And right now we groan within ourselves. We groan with the pain, but we also look forward with anticipation. And then in verse 26, we have the third groaning. It says the Spirit himself makes intercessions for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. The Holy Spirit is groaning. Groanings that cannot be uttered. Now this is a little complicated, but think of it in terms of our prayers. Maybe some of you have been in a situation in which you've had a very challenging news. And you're coming, and you're crying, and your closest friend comes to you. What do you do? Do you explain exactly how you feel? No. You burst out into tears and you hug them. What Paul is saying here is that when we have groanings which cannot be uttered, when we have pains that are not in words, when there's a depth to the suffering that's there, the Holy Spirit comes and like a friend, he groans with us. Say it reverently, but the Holy Spirit comes and he hugs us. The Holy Spirit's like that friend. What does he do then? Does he just comfort us? No. Verse 27, he makes intercessions of the saints according to the will of God. He prays for us. We live in a world of suffering. And Paul does not pretend for a moment that the minute you become a Christian, all this suffering is going to disappear or that our lives are going to be any easier than those who do not believe in Christ. Now keep in mind here, it's very clear, he's talking to Christians here. In Romans 8, 28, all the, he, he comes. He, he's, we've just talked about how to be made right before God. And he says, all things work together to good to those who are called, according to his calling. We'll deal with that a couple sermons from now in terms of the nature of this. This isn't for everyone. He's talking to Christians. But he's saying to the believers at Rome, your sufferings are real. Don't think that just because you're a believer, life is not going to have its sufferings. We live in a world of groaning. But even in describing this world of groaning, he gives us hints of comfort. Hints we'll come back to when we come to our third point. But let's move to our second point. Because we have to confess that God's foreknowledge is often misunderstood. When we deal and accept the reality of suffering, then to come to say, well, all things work together for good sometimes can be heard as if to say everything's going to be all right with the world. 
Sometimes, especially in a world shaped by secular understanding in which the history of the world is a history of progress, somehow we're all smarter than previous generations and we're going to go forward and become better and better and technology is going to save us. There's inevitable progress. I know they don't say it, do they? But when you think of the nature of evolutionary theory itself, what is it? It's survival of the fittest. It's natural selection. Those who have the skills and the attributes that will allow them to survive are going to get better and get ahead, and the rest of you are going to die. And Secular philosophy is actually a pretty hopeless philosophy, and it doesn't have much to say to those who are suffering. And sometimes we can glibly say, well, all things work together for good, as if we just have a Christian version of that secular explanation. But that's not what the text says. And that's why we have to root all things working together for good, our experience of the good, with God's definition of the good. And where does God's definition of the good come? those he did for no. What does he mean by that? Well, he is not talking here about the general omniscience of God. God knows everything. Well, if I just say God knows everything, he would say, well, that's not very comforting because he knows the bad things that are going to happen to me. That's not very helpful. No, what he's talking about, the foreknowledge here is not omniscient. It's talking about the divine plan. It's reaching back to the scriptural teachings of how before the foundation of the world, God, triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit covenanted together. They made a plan. The world is not an accident of history. It's part of God's plan. And everything that happens in time, without making God the author of sin, we'll come back to that, But everything happens within the sovereign plan of God and we can know that his plan will be realized. And ultimately that plan starts with foreknowledge and it ends with glorification. Secondly, it does not automatically mean that Christians are promised prosperity in that plan. We have to say that because in our day there are many prosperity gospel teachers. They present the gospel as if you only believe in Jesus, everything's going to be okay. You're going to marry your family, your kids are all going to be great, you're going to be rich, you're going to be successful, you're going to be famous, you're going to have a happy life. That's not the gospel. As I was thinking through this, I was, it was about 130 families in our congregation. Let's hope that we all do family devotions nightly. That means in the last week we covered about 650 chapters of the Bible. Someone sitting in the pew here may very well in your weekly, in your family devotions have read 2 Samuel 24 this week. It's the story of David. He had initiated a census in the land. God was angry with him. Political turmoil came and God punished Israel. 70,000 people died. I can imagine if you read this at the table, you can imagine 
Some of our young people asking, was that really fair? David made the decision to judge the, to count the people as the king. God got angry at David at a decision of the government, and 70,000 people died. Isn't that cruel? And I can imagine if we put ourselves in the households of those people, these weren't just 70,000 people who were died. There were some children's father. There was some husband's wife. There was someone's best friend. And they cried and they felt the death just as much as you and I do. Or maybe somebody in your daily devotions this week came across the story of Job. Children, you know the story. Job, a man who believed God and everything seemed to go well for him, didn't it? Then the curtain is pulled back and we have a picture of Satan coming to heaven asking God for permission to give Job a hard time. Did he ever give him a hard time? How's that fair? Maybe somebody in your daily devotions came to the story in Samuel in which Hannah was praying for a child with tears. Maybe in some families also listening here there were tears at the supper table as you read that passage because you know about the pains of infertility. There are Hannah's. There are Job's. There are people of Israel here in church. And Paul is not writing simply to say, don't worry about it. All things work together for the those who love God. Your suffering is indifferent. Don't just be tough. Wait it out. That is not what the gospel says. That is a cruel misinterpretation of what Paul is saying here. There are consequences of sin, and yes, it is true that had we never sinned, had Adam and Eve never sinned and we were still in the perfect garden, none of those things would happen. This is the curse of sin. And the curse of sin is such that you and I will face suffering in the world until Christ come again. Just as in Romans 6 to 8, Paul talked about the battle with sin within ourselves, so it is that the curse of sin continues to rebel against God. Indeed, Satan going to God to ask to persecute Job is a good picture of what's going on. Yes, Satan has been defeated, but he's on a leash. He still goes about as a roaring lion. We still face principalities and powers. Satan still delights to be cruel to the children of God. We need to be very careful because often throughout the history of the church, we sometimes have said that when bad things happen to Christian people, well, it must mean your faith isn't good enough or strong enough. 
The disciples came to, to Jesus in, Luke, in an account given to Luke 13. Roman soldiers had killed Galileans in the temple while they were sacrificing. The Tower of Siloam had fallen and 18 people had been killed. And they come to Jesus and they, they say, well, did these people do something wrong? And Jesus said, no. Repent, lest you also suffer. It isn't that bad things happen always as a direct consequence of our personal sins. But yes, the curse of sin is real and we all experience the curse in our sin and of sin in all of our lives and we will till the end of time. And the consequence of sin is that there are accidents, earthquakes, diseases, disasters, and they are real. And we suffer them. Thirdly, that doesn't mean either that when God, having said that, well, God uses all of this, it happens within his plan, so that therefore makes these things good. But somehow we need to rejoice when we are suffering. No, sin is real. And sometimes God uses sinful things to achieve things in the lives of believers, but that doesn't make the bad thing good. James Boyce points this out when he says, God uses bad things for our good, but they're still bad things. This text does not teach that sickness, suffering, persecution, grief, or other things are themselves good. On the contrary, these things are evil. Hatred is not love. Death is not life. Grief is not joy. The world is filled with evil, end quote. Our text will show that ultimately God will overcome evil, that we will be conformed to the character of Jesus Christ, but our comfort is that Christ is the victor over evil. It is not that evil and suffering are not real. Nor does it mean that we need to avoid the difficult feelings that come with evil. Our text says we know all things work together for good. It doesn't say we feel all things work together for good. When Lazarus died, Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew everything was going to work out for good. But when, Lazarus was at the, when Jesus was at the side of Lazarus' tomb, he saw the tears and he felt the pain of death of a friend. What do we read? Jesus wept. Don't go to Jesus and tell him, stop your tears. It's all going to work out. There's a time and place for emotion and pain. This text in no way invalidates it. What it does is helps us understand and put it in perspective. Paul does not pretend the world is a wonderful place free of pain. Verse 35, he talks about tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and peril or sword. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul writes, I'm hard-pressed on every side. I'm perplexed. I'm struck down. That indeed is sometimes the case with the children of God. So let's put our text in the context of the book of Romans. Paul has spent eight chapters outlining our most basic problem is that sin has separated us from God, that we are unrighteous, but that through Jesus Christ we can be made righteous again. There is hope. 
And then he turns to the reality of sin and brokenness that remains so much a part of our lives. And he first deals with the process of personal sanctification, the battle against sin that is each of ours. And here he turns to the problem of external evil. The impact of the curse of sin in the world and how it can make our lives miserable. And it's very real. And yet Paul says all things work together for good. How does this work, Paul? Well, we come to that in our final point and we'll build further on that in future sermons. God's foreknowledge is the foundation of comfort. Paul's answer to that is God has a real plan. And there's certainty in that plan to overcome sin and all of its consequences. And how do we know this is true, Paul? Well, look at the golden chain. The chain of salvation that ties eternity past, all of human history and eternity future. A chain that is linked together and is our confidence for our comfort and salvation, not just in the future, but also today in the midst of challenges. You see, it doesn't say there is foreknowledge. It says God foreknew. And our comfort comes not just from the plan, the existence of the plan, but from the one who made and holds the plan. Sometimes people want to know the future, don't they? And go, I suppose, I was going to say yellow pages, but I'm dating myself. You can go online and you can find fortune tellers, card readers, palm readers. There's a big industry out there. And what do people do? They want to find out the future. I don't have time to get into the particulars, but Satan is real. And sometimes Satan allows us to know the future. That's not a comfort. Knowing what's going to happen is no comfort. But knowing a God who is in control of what is going to happen, well, now we're talking about something different. Think of the original temptation to Eve. Running out of time, so I'll I'll summarize it. Satan comes to Eve. Can you eat of every tree? Eve says to Satan, yeah, except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Why not? Well, God told us not to. God told us that if we eat of that, we're going to die. Satan says to Eve, well, you're not going to die. God knows that if you eat of that tree, your eyes are going to be opened. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. It's a good thing. You get to know more. You get to know what's coming. Children, you know the story. What happened? Adam and Eve ate of the tree. Genesis 3.8. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Satan's tactics haven't really changed, have they? He's doing the same thing today. He wants to tempt you with the fig leaves of human explanation. He wants it all to fit in some plan of what's going to happen in your future. Well, how did God answer Satan? Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. He said, sin has consequences. Adam and Eve, you're to go out of the garden. Thorns, thistles, pains, but that's not all. Genesis 3.15. 
the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Do you think that Adam and Eve understood all that? As they walked outside of the garden and stepped on their first thistle, as they walked out with the awkwardness of their clothes and felt the sweat and toil of their pain in connection with the tilling of the field for the first time, do you think they understood all that? But they had the promise. I imagine there were tears and confusion, but they had the promise. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts 2. It's the story of Pentecost. Several thousand years later, Jesus has died, risen, ascended into heaven, and now his disciples are in the upper room waiting. And do you think they understood everything that was going to happen? I imagine there was a lot of pain and anxiety in that upper room. Even though Jesus has risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, here they're sitting in an upper room, having no clue of what to do, worried, scared. They knew the promise of Genesis 3.15 had been fulfilled in Christ, but he's in heaven. Here they are, with all the challenges and with a lack of clear answers. Then the Holy Spirit comes. They're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they go out and preach. What does Peter preach? Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God dimmed through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken and by lawless hands have crucified. What's Peter's comfort? The fact that God is carrying out his plan. That God sent Jesus. And that's why God raised him up. And he's loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that Jesus could be held by it. Jews. You crucified Jesus, but it wasn't just you. It was the determined foreknowledge and purpose of God. You thought you were going to get rid of your troubles by overcoming Jesus, but that's evil. That's sin and its consequences, but God has another plan. The evil that you did, God's plan overtook that, and he loosed the pains of death because he could not be held by it. He's alive. Death could not hold him. Nor can the consequence or pains of death hold him now. Isn't that exactly what Paul is saying here? Pains are real. And yes, we're in the upper room and we don't understand. Not everything has been revealed fully with clarity. But know this, the complete work of Christ's victory and the Holy Spirit's sanctification is certain. There's a chain that connects God's promise and predestination with calling and justification and glorification, and you can bank on it. Look at that chain that connects foreknowledge to glory. It's part of God's chain. It's part of His plan. We're not there yet. This is the time of suffering. But know that 
God remains the same God, and that's why we can say all things work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. There's nothing in your circumstances that God did not foreknow. Not just as omniscience, but in the sense that he took account of it in his plan. One final thought will become much more clear in future sermons, but the great comfort of this passage is that while all of God's attributes come to bear, God's justice, God's mercy, God's grace, God's truth, everything comes together in this plan. The unmistakable theme of this passage is love. When Paul speaks to those who are suffering, he leads with God's love. Did you notice that? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not freely give us all things? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? God did not spare his own son, but he delivered him up. We cannot be separated from his love. In all these things, We are more than conquerors through him who loves us. The title in the New King James says, From Suffering to Glory, both are real. How do we get there? How do you get from your suffering today to glory? On the road of God's love. Pulled in the wagon of righteousness. Confident that the golden chain of salvation will not break. Does that mean there's only comfort in the future? No, Paul wouldn't have bothered writing it that way, this way. There's purpose in this passage. Can I summarize it this way? Paul is saying, your burdens, they're heavy. They weigh a lot. They cause you to creak and cry. And in the midst of this, I need to come to remind you that no matter how much your burden weighs, God's love weighs more. There's a scale. And your burdens are here and it weighs sometimes more than you can think you carry. But when you are right with God, when even the Holy Spirit is crying tears with you and praying prayers for you and bringing them to the right hand of the throne of God to intercede for you, know this, beloved, God's love weighs more passage is a word of grace and a word of comfort. Are you in a right relationship with God? The just shall live by faith. Is that you? Because that's who this is talking about. But to the believer who's in a right relationship with God, burdened down by the pains of life, know three things. Your weight is real and he feels it. Your Savior is Jesus who wept and felt pain. When being delivered up by the foreknowledge of God, sweated tears of blood in the garden, even Jesus prayed, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And you know the story. The cup did not pass. Jesus carried it through. The chain did not break. 
And secondly, while we wait for the full accomplishment of this salvation, enduring suffering, know that we have a high priest who is touched by the feeling of our infirmities. We have a Holy Spirit groaning with us who knows our pain. And he's a God of love. Just as Jesus pleaded and carrying out the most righteous act that ever has been delivered to carry the sins of the world and face the justice of God, if he could pray to the Father, so can you. Because you are righteous through Christ before God. Oh, plead to a triune God for his comfort through the pains of your journey. And while there is no guarantee of how God is going to answer that prayer in the short term, you can know this. Jesus did not pass on the cup. He bore the full wrath of God. And in that cup is every aspect of sin and its curse. Every cancer, every COVID, every disease, every isolation, every bullying, every tear. It's in the cup. And Christ took it all. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, what a glorious truth of salvation it is that you have in your word that you are sovereign. Lord, although man's sin is an act of rebellion against you and your goodness, oh Lord, our comfort is not that we can overcome sin. Our comfort is not that we can believe our way through sin and its pain and its consequences. But our comfort is that already before the world began, you had a plan. That the foundation of salvation is divine foreknowledge. That there is nothing that faces us which is outside of that plan. And Lord, that there is a golden chain that ties your plan to glory. Lord, you know each one. You know what's going through our minds. You know the pains of our hearts. Work with your Holy Spirit. Apply your word to each as we have need. Grant, Lord, that you may receive all the glory and honor and praise. Be with us as we leave this place. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.